When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Welcome to episode 124. I'm your host, Steph Storer. And on today's episode of Ask the Expert, we are lucky enough to have the brilliantly talented author, historian, and broadcaster, Sarah Griswold with us. Welcome, Sarah. Lovely to be here. So for today's discussion, we've asked our listeners to send in some questions regarding the language of love as it pertains to both Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I. So I think this is a really interesting topic because really their personal relationships actually really do help shape who we believe these women were. So before we start, Sarah, why do you feel like this topic is so compelling for you? Well, of course, it's basically the subject of the new book I have coming out, in certainly in the UK, in just a few weeks now. The Tudors in Love, The Courtly Code Behind the Last Medieval Dynasty. And it's very much about the Tudors and the long history of courtly love, which I'd see as a code, a theory, and yes, a language, which the Tudors both made use of, exploited, and perhaps were, you know, in in a sense themselves almost enthralled to, were used by. I see the Tudors as, in many ways, a dynasty in love with the idea of love, and that that filters through into the way they communicated with a wider world. Well, as you'll see coming up by the questions from our listeners, your audience definitely feels the same way. So, okay, let's get started. So our first question comes from Sherry O'Neill. What were some of the most common forms of courtly love that could be exchanged between men and women? Right. Well, I think we have to begin with, if you like, what was courtly love. And I'm not going to try and do it in, you know, a very long number of words we've it's a picture we've all got a picture in our head you know all of us who are likely to be listening to this will have read the children's books will have seen the image of a man a knight and a, a lover kneeling in homage before a beautiful lady the picture we have in our heads of course doesn't come right back from the 16th or certainly not the 12th century. We tend to get it filtered through a Victorian perspective. Huge revival of chivalry, of courtly love. But we have to remember that at the the Tudor court, just as in the medieval castle, uh, the world was slightly skewed, if you like, because there was a huge imbalance in the number of men and the number of women. So, you know, a kind of 50-50, what we'd, you know, a kind of normal, what we'd see as a healthy relation 
between the sexes there was never going to be a possibility. Instead, there needed to be some kind of framework, some kind of patterns of behaviour that could accommodate this. You know, the queen, the few ladies around her, or the lady of the castle, and all these often very young, very active, we can assume fairly highly sexed men around them. How did you kind of rationalise that, sublimate it? Now, the whole, the whole business of the tournament, jousting, with which the Tudors, like so many before them, were enamoured, was a way of kind of rationalising and controlling uh, the, the, what, the impulses of a warrior class, if you like. Perhaps courtly love was kind of the the feminine face of the same thing. So it music, poetry, it would be considered, you know, nat- natural, normal, acceptable, even admirable for a young man to be adoring a lady to whom he was not married, was never likely to be married. One of the great questions were whether this was just going to be a kind of unrewarded devotion or whether he was hoping to get his reward. Heaven knows we come across that question, don't we, with Anne Boleyn. But so it would just be, if we take Anne Boleyn as an example, you can see it, heaven knows, in the letters that Henry VIII wrote to her, perhaps in the poems that Thomas Wyatt wrote. And too, in all those flirtatious remarks by the men in her chamber, the ones that finally got her into the tower. Thank you for bringing up the letters. That's a perfect segue. Laura Sickward Roy, I'm sorry if I didn't say your name right, asked us if you can tell us a little bit about the letters between Henry and Anne. If you could focus on what they talked about with each other and how often. Well, unfortunately, I really wish that we did have the letters between the two. What we have, of course, is a one-sided correspondence. Boy, wouldn't we all like to find what Anne wrote to Henry. What we have, what was preserved in the Vatican archives, almost certainly taken there by a spy, was 16 letters that Henry VIII, love letters, that Henry wrote to Anne Boleyn. They're undated, you know, scholars can argue endlessly about what came first. And if we had Anne's answers, we'd know a lot more about this most fascinating of women. But Henry's letters, certainly what I think of as the the earliest of them chronologically, often written in French, the language of courtly love, see him positioning himself, just as I've described, as Anne's humble servant. Never mind that he's the king, though, you know, flashes of that peep through. But in theory, at least, he's saying, you know, my heart and I are at your service, you know, a letter from one who desires only to be your servant. And this was pure courtly love stuff. The letters change, perhaps, you know, over the long years as the relationship wears on. Some of them become a little more factual and practical, Others become a little more overtly sexual. I mean, there's that one where he writes about longing to kiss her pretty duckies' breasts. And there's others where, you know, he's sending he's sending venison and he's talking about sending 
heart flesh for Henry, you know, eat, when you eat it, think of me, which is quite a sort of sensual image. Um, as I say, we don't tragically have Anne's replies. We can only guess at them from what Henry writes, you know, whether he writes in relief and delight or whether he's protesting that she hasn't, she hasn't been to court, she hasn't been warm enough. Clearly, he was urging her to become, at first, to become his mistress, probably in both the, the sexual and the courtly sense. But, obviously, as time wore on, his goal changed to making her his wife, uh, and then the letters do become a little bit more concerned with practicalities, with things like the arrival in England of the Cardinal Campeggio, who they hope will sort everything out and make it possible for them to marry. What we do have from Anne, I should have said, however, is one letter of Henry's is writing ecstatically about a jewel that she's sent him, a diamond, but also the figure of a solitary woman, a, a, you know, a maiden, uh, and a ship. And the implication is clearly that the woman is adrift on stormy seas. It's always been assumed that, you know, that what it's really saying, because, of course, Tudor Jules talked, um, is that Anne, Anne was adrift, Anne was afraid of being shipwrecked, perhaps that, you know, Henry would be her safe harbour. But I found there is something else there. In the literature of courtly love, repeatedly, there's an equation made between seasickness and lovesickness. So who knows? It's just possible that in this duel, Anne was actually suggesting that at last she had fallen in love with Henry. That's beautiful. Thank you. So um, unfortunately, our next question is not necessarily about romantic love, but it has been asked so many times. This was by far the most popular question this time. Um, among others, we have Douglas Breeden, Michelle T725, Katie Ray, and the list goes on and on. But so many people asked about the brooch or the checkers ring that Elizabeth carried that was a picture of her and her mother, who we think is her mother. Think, yes. So has she, aside from carrying that, had she ever outwardly expressed feelings about her mother during her reign? Well, she did speak, yes, but not that much. She did it more, I'd say, you know, a little quietly, a little tacitly. Um, certainly, you know, she didn't do when when her sister Mary came to her throne. The first thing she did was, you know, sort of have her parents' marriage declared valid, etc. Um, and Elizabeth didn't do any of that. Uh, she did, however, in the pageants that greeted Elizabeth's coronation, there was Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn standing side by side, you know, so and rehabilitated there. Elizabeth did, did speak of her mother, you know, um, with a fa a, other people gave her books indeed, you know, about her mother, um, which, you know, clearly in the expectation that she would welcome them. She promoted uh, relatives of her mother's family, the Careys, and of course there is the so-called 
Checkers Ring. I mean, Checkers is the name of the the place, the house where where it it lives. It's the official country residence of the Prime Minister of Great Britain, and we don't even know for sure how the ring wound up there. But very beautiful ring has inside it two tiny miniatures. One of them is very clearly of Elizabeth I herself, looks the way she might have been in about, you know, all 1575 or so. The other is the picture of a woman, and the look of it suggests that the woman is coming from the, the 1530s or 40s. Now, it is usually assumed that this is Anne Boleyn, that this is why, indeed, um, Elizabeth was carrying it. And so it may well be. There are one or two oddities in that case. Um, the woman has red gold hair. We've always been told that Anne Boleyn had black hair, though in fact, Susan Doran points out, that only really comes from one report, and a report of someone who'd have been quite anxious to present Anne Boleyn as this kind of sinister witchy figure, you know, and black hair works, works with that. Uh, it has been suggested that the figure could be a young Elizabeth herself, though I don't quite see that, or that it could be Catherine Parr, her last stepmother. And the one thing in favour of that is that there's the symbol of a phoenix, which of course is it one of Elizabeth's own symbols, but it was also the symbol of, of a symbol of the Seymour family. And of course, Catherine Parr married Thomas Seymour. But I kind of feel that, you know, we're justified, let's say, in, in feeling that this ring probably is a tribute that Elizabeth paid to her mother. That, yes, you know, portrayal then in the 16th century was often not necessarily precisely physically accurate. Hair or no hair, um, the chances are it's Anne Boleyn. Our next question from Edward V., focuses on probably the most controversial topic we're going to talk about today, mm -hmm. but I'm happy to hear your answer. What was the real relationship between the teenage Elizabeth mm. and Thomas Seymour? And Thomas Seymour. Yes, uh, it's a good question to which, unfortunately, there is no really good answer. The only honest answer can be that we don't entirely know. And probably, I would say, the protagonists themselves didn't know either. Again, because the evidence does suggest a certain amount of, of, of contradiction. You know, it, it's possibly fairly clear what Thomas Seymour wanted, however clearly he did or didn't admit it to himself. It's a lot less clear Elizabeth's reaction. You know, on the one hand, it was said, and of course, all the reports we have come, you know, from two of her servants given later under duress. They had said that she seemed, she blushed when, when you know, Thomas Seymour was spoken of. She seemed to like to hear him spoken of. He was, after all, you know, a glamorous man. But it's also 
very definitely, you know, there are reports that after he began coming into her bedroom, you know, when she was still in bed, seizing her familiarly, smacking her bottom even, seems deeply inappropriate today. She began trying to get up and dressed before he appeared. Catherine Parr's attitude is even more puzzling. It is possibly she just thought, possibly, she just thought of Elizabeth as a child, you know, and this is all as harmless fun, which, of course, is how Thomas Seymour tried to present it, uh, because there is that story of um, it, them being in the garden and Thomas Seymour cutting Elizabeth's dress to ribbons while Catherine Parr held her, you know. I mean, I suppose they, mind you, held her, held her how? Held her down for him to cut the dress? Or, you know, could it even be held her protectively? I imagine that Catherine Parr, again, was in some confusion and possibly wanting to believe, to convince herself that this was not, that, you know, this was nothing more than harmless fun between an adult and a child. That looks pretty unconvincing now, the more so, of course, for the fact that Thomas Seymour had sought to marry Elizabeth, you know, even before he married Catherine Parr. So what do I, what do, what do I really think the relationship was? Um, exploitative and damaging on Seymour's part though it's possible he didn't acknowledge as much to himself, um, probably very confusing for both, confusing and worrying for both the women involved. I don't think you can make this look, you know, look good and harmless, however hard you try. Uh, but, of course, you know, the... Uh, the rules of the day put Elizabeth's age into less prominence, you know, than, than we'd give it today. Um, probably, you know, possibly, well, she had been fond of him. Perhaps she did feel, you know, an element of a teenage girl's crush, if you like. But I don't think we can't today feel that that makes it all right. This brief interruption is brought to you by, well, me. Do you love Tudor's Dynasty? Consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of amazing things that the everyday listener does not. Find out more by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty, and click Become a Patron for details. All right, back to the show. So back to um, Elizabeth and Anne. Our questions from Jess Villa and Samantha Dillon were they were wondering why you think Elizabeth didn't have her mother Anne's body exhumed and reburied in kind of a more proper fashion, similarly to how James the first did with his mother Mary. Mm. Well, I think Elizabeth would have been wary. I think we have to remember, you know, just um, how vulnerable Elizabeth was when she came to the throne, how vulnerable the throne and the country were, you know, one of her own agents described England as a bone between two dogs, France and Spain. Uh, and the the assumption, you know, was that Elizabeth, Elizabeth was obviously to Catholic eyes, a, you know, a deeply improper 
inhabitant for that throne. So really, I think, although Anne featured in the pageantry of her coronation, although there are signs that Elizabeth remembered her mother, you know, uh, with with respect, fondness, um, it must have seemed pretty unwise to go making a parade of uh, her descent from Anne Boleyn. After all, I mean, I hate to say it, but there'd have been certain practical problems to <clears throat> burying, to, to reburying Anne, as we know, you know, um, after her Anne's execution, her body was bundled into a kind of arrow chest, probably, you know, with the head at the feet, um, and placed in the chapel in the tower, but, you know, in, in a grave that we can't even be sure of the location today. But given the huge controversy about, you know, about Anne and the uh, the nature of her death, I think Elizabeth, certainly in her early years, would have been wary, you know, would have felt that it was much, much safer to flaunt her status as great Harry's daughter, you know, her father's daughter with his red, you know, his red hair, his, all the rest of it. Um, and let the question of her mother just slide slightly. I mean, I said, especially in the early years, after it, we spoke about the ring a minute ago, didn't we? The checkers ring. And it's interesting that that seems to show Elizabeth as she was in in about 1575, which was a kind of bit of a turning point in her reign. But by then, you know, she'd been on the throne for more than more than a decade and a half was feeling more secure in her role. So, you know, perhaps if it was if it, if 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 the ring does show Anne, um, whether it was Elizabeth who commissioned it or who who got it as a accepted it as a gift, it may have come at a moment when when Elizabeth wasn't feeling quite so vulnerable, was felt able to acknowledge Anne a bit more. Here we are back in another controversial topic but we are heading into the questions about Amy Robsart's death mm. um, and her and the relationship between Dudley and Elizabeth. So that's always a fun one. <laughs> Our first uh, question on that topic, Debbie Kingsley wanted to know, had Amy Robsart's death not happened the way that it did, do you think Elizabeth might have actually married Dudley mm. or was, was her death not even a factor in her decision to remain single? Well, it, yeah, it, it, it's it, it's a good question, and it's another one to which we can only give personal answers. I personally do have um, a, a, a conviction, but I may be wholly wrong. You know, we all have our own opinions on this one, um, because certainly Amy Robsart, everyone I'm sure knows, you know, knows what we're talking about, uh, that that when Elizabeth came to the throne, Robert Dudley, you know, her first great favourite, and a man she undoubtedly loved in, in many ways, uh, was a married man. His wife, when his wife Amy died, it was in a fall down a shallow flight of stairs. Uh, it was among such controversy, such talk of murder, that yes, for a time, it would have made it absolutely impossible for Elizabeth and Dudley to marry. I mean, that to me is the best argument 
for saying that no, Robert Dudley didn't murder his wife, because I think he was far too shrewd and experienced a politician not to have known what would happen. Uh, and indeed, you know, ambassadors abroad were writing that if 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 um, if Elizabeth married Dud Robert Dudley, she might go to bed as Queen of England and wake up as plain Mistress Elizabeth. But does any scandal, even one like this, keep its its white heat forever? Five years down the line, ten. I mean, a few years down the line, you've got Parliament, admittedly a Parliament in which, you know, Robert Dudley had a fair few supporters placed, but Parliament begging Elizabeth to marry anybody. And they were very specific about anybody, whoever, they were so, you know, desperate for her to marry and have children, that whoever her choice lit on, him they would obey. You know, it was a licence for Elizabeth to marry Robert Dudley, but she didn't take it. So my own feeling is that no. Um, in the short term, the scandal would have made it impossible for her to marry, marry him. But the fact that she that she ne that she still continued not to do it, um, I think there was a deep-seated reluctance in her, for whatever reason, to marry anyone, even him. And the reasons, the potential reasons, of course, are many and varied, both personal and political. What an interesting perspective. Thank you. So now, speaking of Elizabeth and Dudley, was this question is actually, again, from Laura Roy. Thank you, Laura. What about how were they together in public? Were they hmm. permitted to be flirty or affectionate in public? Even, you know, if we go so far as to say, obviously, when he was married, then when he wasn't, um, what did their relationship look like to the outside world? Uh, up and down is the answer. Uh, yes, they, they certainly, there were public displays of affection. And I mean, let's remember that Robert's job as master of horse was one of the few that gave him real, for a man, physical proximity to Elizabeth, you know, riding with her, lifting her up and down from her horse. Um, heaven knows at least one display of affection between them uh, much later would cause scandal. When it, when, when Elizabeth created Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, uh, po nominally, possibly to make him a more suitable husband for Mary, Queen of Scots. At the actual ceremony, she was seen, as you know, one ambassador reported horrified, to kittle his neck, smile, tickle his neck smilingly, you know, as she kind of placed the chain of office around it. So Elizabeth was not 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 wary of showing affection to Robert when it suited her. But it was a massively up and down relationship. I mean, with her con totally controlling the ups and the downs. Um, you know, on the one hand, when she kind of used him, almost like a kind of stalking horse, whenever another suitor came too close... You know, it really looked as if she might have to give an answer. She'd say, oh, Robert Dudley was the only man she could ever love. You know, if ever she married anyone, uh, it would be him. 
But then the next minute she'd be saying that he was like her little dog, people said. You know, that, that, that whenever they saw him, they knew she must be somewhere nearby, which is pretty insulting, you know, for a, 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 a 16th century nobleman. And I mean, and the, the ups and downs continued. So, yes, there were public displays of affection. I mean, to the point where at one point Elizabeth teasingly told the Spanish ambassador that uh, her ladies, there were rumours they had married. Her ladies had been asking her whether that whether they, they should kiss Rob, you know, kiss Lester's hand. But again, the next minute she'd be dismissing him as just one of many favourites, you know, how dare he presume? He could never feel safe in all those years, I think. Indeed, we know he couldn't. Um, the letters right towards the end of his life make that painfully clear. Now, you had mentioned earlier that she had other favourites besides Dudley, which is hard to even think about because their relationship is on the forefront, usually. Jenna Marie asks... Who were these favorites, the others? And if you could tell us, maybe, did they have anything in common with each other? Was there something about each of these men that Elizabeth liked? Or did she just kind of, you know, pick who she was attracted to? To answer the last bit first, yes, tall, dark and handsome is what they all had in common. Um and it, which indeed NB is possibly also the physical and you know, and slightly swashbuckling. Possibly also the type of Thomas Seymour, possibly something that said, does say something, you know, uh, about, about that relationship. Um, but yes, Elizabeth had, uh, well, there were a number of people who seemed briefly to be coming into, into favour into prominence. But it's always said, and I think rightly, that Elizabeth had four favourites of the first rank. Um, people like, you know, the Cecils were in a different category entirely. There was Robert Dudley and sort of contemporaries with him. You know, in, in the first part of Elizabeth's reign, there was Christopher Hatton. And then later uh, there, there would be there would be Essex and Walter Raleigh. And I see quite a big difference between the two generations of favourites if you like. Now, Lester was in a sense in a, in a different category because he did, with some reason, you know, cherish real hopes of marrying her. You know, ambassadors writing that, uh, this is early in the reign, that it's easy to recognise in him the king who is to be. You know, that, um, that you know, their marriage was, was some, some feared it, but many expected it. Hatton, highly unlikely that he would could ever have dreamt of marriage. I mean, if to marry an Earl of Leicester, who had at least been, you know, the son of a man-made duke, albeit uh, disgraced, if, if that would be difficult for Elizabeth, and forgive me, if you're hearing a snorting sound in the background, it's a large dog at my feet. I'm kicking him gently, but he's going right on snoring. Christopher Hatton was, you know, from a lower rank than Lester. So really, for her to marry a mere master Christopher Hatton, or, you know, even Sir Christopher Hatton, would have been an absurdity. 
which is possibly why it actually felt so safe for them that he could write these long, extraordinarily, you know, love letters, you know, all about how he's dying for love of her. He's sending her jewel to be worn between the sweet Doug's breasts, you know, and um, a letter from a friend and advisor of his talks about how Elizabeth, you know, uh, is okay for Hatton to contradict her in the early days of the relationship, that Elizabeth would tolerate it, but that now that she had what she wanted, that she'd come to satiety and fullness, um, he'd better be a bit more careful. And of course, that's a very interesting phrase because, you know, there were rumours, rumours only, that to, that Elizabeth had become Hatton's lover, even if she hadn't Elizabeth's. But I think that's highly unlikely. I think, indeed, it's his, it is the comparative modesty of his situation that made it feel safe for her to play that game. Now, both of those were favourites of, you know, of of Elizabeth's early and middle years as queen. Some historians now speak, don't they, about Elizabeth's second reign, basically the years, well, either from the Armada, after the Armada, or let's say from about 1584 onwards. And that's the point at which Hatton and Leicester are bowing out. A visitor to England then described them as charming white-haired old gentlemen. Elizabeth was by no means willing to sort of give up the ghost as imagining herself, you know, presenting herself as beautiful and desired. But the men around her didn't really have access, you know, either to her makeup or her ability to, you know, force everyone to join in the fantasy. So, and, and Lester, of course, wanted, had married, you know, was desperate for a son and heir of his own, which by then he, he had achieved though the child sadly died young. And you can see um, in those mid-years of the, of the 1580s, Leicester, well, moving away, of course, moving away first to lead an army in the Netherlands, and then soon after the Armada, um, he died, leaving Elizabeth distraught. Hatton uh, continued around for, for some years, but he was very much involved by then in his political work. You know, his letters to Elizabeth had become a lot less lover-like, you know, a lot more, A, a lot more practical and also a lot more tetchy. So the way was clear for newcomers. And there in the first rank was first Walter Raleigh, to whom the Queen took an enormous shine, and then the Earl of Essex, who, of course, was Leicester's stepson and who Leicester had brought to court, maybe in a way as his kind of surrogate. And I think perhaps in a way that's how Elizabeth took him. You know, certainly after Leicester died, it's almost as though Elizabeth was trying, unavailingly, I'd say, to put Essex in his place. Sadly, they were very different men with very different feelings towards Elizabeth, I think. Um, and... Uh, you know, and it, 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 it's very debatable whether Essex ever had the kind of real, genuine, almost familial affection for Elizabeth that Leicester had had. Nonetheless, Essex too used this, I mean, 
absolutely hyperbolically so, this language of love, this courtly language, although he's decades younger than Elizabeth, and in private life he's often, you know, commenting very rudely about her. He writes to her that, you know, when he sails away abroad, the windows of her chamber will be, you know, the twin poles guiding him home. He writes of her almost as a goddess, you know, and about you know, his huge love, uh, des- how he's desperate to conquer her resisting will. You know, again, it's couched utterly in the language of love, whatever more complex mixture of feelings lay behind it. Well, Sarah, I have to say thank you so much for this chat today. Um, I think that we've covered all of the love questions that our listeners wrote in about, um, had a great time. So before I let you go, I know that you had mentioned earlier in our chat that you have a new book coming out about this topic. So can you give us some information about, uh, again, the title, when it's coming out, where we can find it? Right. Well, it's called The Tudors in Love, uh, The Courtly Code Behind Our Last Medieval Dynasty. And it is indeed... um, it begins with the long history of of courtly love, of the Arthurian stories that became so intertwined with courtly love and which the Tudors absolutely made use of, you know, positioning themselves as King Arthur's heirs. It's It comes out in the UK on September 23rd in, in the US next year. So I do hope that if any of you read it, you enjoy it. And what about your books that are already out? What can we read right now? Oh, gosh. Well, my last one was Game of Queens, the women, the women who made 16th century Europe. And that was, that was uh, well, another important one for, for, for me personally, because it, it is literally about, I saw see the 16th century, the late 15th and 16th century, as an age when women um, took centre stage in Europe to an extraordinary degree, not just Elizabeth and Mary, uh, but abroad, if you think of right through from Isabella of Castile to people like the Netherlands regent, Margaret of Austria, this kind of wonderful, shrewd and powerful politician, and and Catherine de' Medici, and women particularly came to be on either side of the religious divide. So I found the networks there was something that really has quite a lot of relevance for our own day. I can personally vouch for that one. It's a great read. So everybody go out and get that one. And we're looking forward to your next book. So lastly, really quickly, what about social media? Do we, how do we follow you or contact oh, you? Oh, easily. Um, I just use my name as, as most tags. So I think I'm, I'm Sarah Gristwood on Twitter and indeed Facebook. So no, happy to, uh, and Instagram. Happy to see any of you there. Perfect. Well, thank you again for joining us, Sarah. I really enjoyed our talk and uh, we'll hope to have you back again. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.